0: We were trying a slightly different microphone setting. Uh, I had a couple of complaints last week that the mic was too loud. Just not sure what's up with that. Uh, <laughs> the mic was simply... Like, like, nothing was changed about it at all. Uh, maybe I was just talking too enthusiastically. I don't know. So if it's too quiet today, I... Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. So that's why. Um, <clears throat> once again, I don't feel like I have a lot of things to say about this episode. I do feel uh, this is a good episode to remind my viewers that we have a no-spoilers policy on this show. And the way that policy works is you can talk about anything that has happened up to the current episode. So up to this episode, you can talk about, you know, everything that's happened up to, se- to Season 1, Episode 8, and that's it. You go past this, your comment gets blocked. You go past this in an obviously obnoxious way, you might actually get banned for this. I'd, I'm not worried about most of my regular viewers doing that. I'm just just giving you the, the rules, so to speak. With that being said, Walter Koenig is awesome in this episode. Oh wait, no he isn't. See, for those of you not aware, Night 2 <clears throat> was actually originally uh, going to be portrayed by Walter Koenig. Uh, for those of you not aware, the gentleman who gets his mind... Who's actually in the the, the program with Sinclair, that's, uh, that's Night 2. And Walter Koenig had to turn that down for various scheduling reasons. And instead... Sadly ended up with the incredibly awesome role of Bester, and it's one of those little weird things that I think we can all be thankful for, that he ended up as Bester and not Knight 2. Um, there are actually a couple other actors who were offered the job of Knight 2 as well and, were, and couldn't take it. I will say the gentleman who plays him is brilliant. Uh, he does an excellent job of portraying a character who's a bad guy but isn't actually evil and someone who is dedicated to his job, and driven, and and actually believes what he's thinking, and a few other things. We'll talk about more of that later. Um, So I want to mention one other name. Judson Scott played Night One. Now, I know what you're saying. Who the heck is Judson Scott? And I freely admit that other than the one other thing he's been in, I haven't really seen him in anything. Um, He played uh, Joachim, or Joachim, depending on how you pronounce it, over in uh, Wrath of Khan. Uh, Khan's uh, uh, Starbuck, basically. I think I'm using the right parallel there. It's been a while. But, you know, his, his, his second-in-command, the, the guy who is actually loyal but, but checks him, you know, that guy. Um, and the first time I saw him, I'm like, oh, my God. And you, you're going to get used to that, by the way. There's actually a fairly large number of Star Trek actors who are in Babylon 5, a disturbingly large number, really. The only other show I can think of that has more Star Trek actors in it is Stargate. And if you think I'm kidding, Stargate has basically all the Star Trek actors in it. And some Farscape actors. And some Babylon 5 actors, and you get the idea. But anyways, anyways, so... um. The, there's a great line right towards the beginning of this episode. The innocent lie so they don't get blamed for something they didn't do. And the guilty lie because they don't have any other choice. I kind of like that line. It really kind of showcases Sinclair's mindset. It's it's simultaneously cynical and idealistic, as contradictory as that sounds. You know, the cynic is saying everybody lies. And, I mean, that's you know, fairly true, right? We all lie. Um, for example, <clears throat> I am Elvis. There you go. I've I've fulfilled my lie quota for the day. Um, but the other side of that is is the idealism. The fact that the innocent may lie, but they're still innocent. You know, they're still not bad people or doing something wrong. They are lying out of fear or out of uh, being bullied or being, uh, you know, a, a victim in some way. You know, that kind of a thing. And, uh, well, speaking personally, I can totally, yeah, I totally see that. The idea of lying because you are afraid... Even though you've done nothing wrong, you are afraid they will claim you have, or they will force you to, to be hurt anyways, regardless of whether you did anything wrong or not. Because one thing real life has told us is you can do everything right, and people will still hurt you for it. So, next thing I want to point out here is the, uh, the security risk thing, which is, is a great thing. Like, okay, you're a security risk because of your gambling habits. I love that because it's the kind of thing that most people would look at on the surface and say, Yeah, but they actually bother to to actually go one level deeper and explain why he's a security risk, and then show why he's a security risk. And it's brilliant because the surface level is he's he's gambles and therefore is a security risk. You know, everyone who's just like duh and doesn't even think about it. They talk about the next level down for that. Someone could uh, you know say okay, well in exchange for the money you owe, we'll let you know we need you to do. You know, we need need you to look the other way while we commit a crime or whatever like that. That's that's the next level down uh, of a security risk there. And they actually talk about that, and then they show the worst possible security risk. The security risk where he does something that is illegal, but he has no idea what he's doing. One of the things I love about this episode is that it showcases how actual, you know manipulative organizations work, basically, especially in fiction. I've actually used this kind of concept myself many, many, many times. Uh, And admittedly, I myself have also been inspired by a a few works of fiction, including most notably Shadows of the Empire, when it comes to this kind of thing. In other words, the, the overreaching organization is trying to manipulate circumstances to its affairs, but when you get down to the personal level, most of the people who are helping to further those goals have no idea that they are. Or that there is a goal that they're furthering at all. This guy wants a power source. He gets them a power source. They pay him the end. That's it. And and, and he has no concept or understanding of the fact that it has anything to do with anything. In fact, it's actually kind of funny. Because this episode actually contains an example of what I would arguably call bad writing. And I hate to say that. Because later on, Benson, the, the gambling gentleman, goes to these people... And, and it's like, oh my god, you got to help me. Now that can be explained away, but it never is. He just randomly happens to show up, and that happens to be the lead that they need in order to try and figure things out because of the fact that he goes back to these people who he did a deal with one time. Now again, that can be explained away, but it isn't. So, kind of poor Mark there. But I do absolutely overwhelm that with the good marks for actually showcasing what it's like for the individuals helping the grand conspiracy or the grand organization or the grand criminal empire or whatever, without ever realizing they're doing so. Because that's how it works, and it's nice. Um, <clears throat> I uh, There's a nice touch. When Sinclair wakes up in the Matrix, basically, in the in the simulation, he's got sweat. They added sweat all over his shirt in a rather nice pattern. Now, that if you don't understand why that's a nice touch, he was having a nightmare about the Battle of the Line. And, yeah, you'd probably wake up fairly sweaty from that. And I like that they just show that. Tiny little bit of visual editing to, to really showcase... Uh, how much it's affecting him. I also had the thought, I know we're in the dream state and all that, and they're deliberately calling back to those events, and that's why he dreamed of that, but I have this feeling that he dreamt about the line battle for many years after it happened. I wouldn't be surprised if he still dreams about it to this day. Which brings me to another point. Sinclair has a comment about how it took him years to get to the point where he didn't want to strangle him Barry every time he saw them. Given his overall diplomatic approach we've seen in the previous seven episodes, well, eight episodes, technically, given how close he's become to Delenn, given how he has been working towards a fair and just perspective, that says a lot, in my opinion, about who and what Sinclair is. This is a man who has a great, deep, personal reason to hate a species, and he has actively worked not to. And I like that as well, because it's very human. I know that sounds weird, because you're like, oh, well, that just makes him superhuman. No. Superhuman... Okay. <laughs> he is a flawed man, right? He acknowledged those flaws, and he moved on from those flaws, and each, and each overcame those flaws. That is human. Having flaws is not necessarily human. I mean, it's easy to make a flawed character. Boom. Done. There you go. Having a flawed character who actively tries to overcome those flaws that's wonderfully human. And that's one of the things I like about Sinclair. Now, if he had never been against the Mimbari, if he's like, oh, yeah, a you know, bygones begones, that wouldn't be human. There would be no flaw, and he would just be a little bit too perfect. I bring this up because we've actually discussed in my show recently the idea of the Mary Sue, again, because we keep discussing this. And I've only heard one person ever say this, but I just want to get this out there right now. I do not think Sinclair is in any way a Mary Sue character at all. He is exceptionally flawed, he is not the smartest guy. He works hard to overcome his flaws and to overcome his his weaknesses, but at no point in time do I feel he is a Mary Sue. I, I honestly can't even begin to say that. But everything I just said about you know his his hatred and overcoming that of the Membari is evidence I give for the fact that he is not a Mary Sue, but is in fact just a character, um, <clears throat> in a good way. I mean that in a good way. Um, I will say that the empty station was nicely chilling. They did some good work with that. Uh, actually, they were—if you pay attention—they were very limited in the set design for the in the matrix things, and yet very good usage of lighting and camera angles make it feel a lot better than it otherwise would, which is which is a really nice touch. So good directing job there too. Um, I like how quickly and seriously Garibaldi takes the situation. Absolutely love it. Um, it's very Garibaldi. You know, the, the commander isn't paying attention. Okay, I'm going to go to his quarters right now. Give him one chance to be there. Nope, he's not there. Alert everything. We've we got to find the commander. I love that. That's the kind of thing that you really should see, especially in a situation like this. There have been several times in, and I hate to call it out on this, Star Trek, where, you know, oh my god, the, captain, the captain's missing. Ah, it's not a big deal. Or the commander missing. Ah, it's not a big deal. Or whatever. You know, I figured it would just be... A, No big deal, you know. Uh, It's it's just whatever. A good slash bad example of this is the episode Move Along Home in Season 1 of Deep Space Nine, where the guy on deck, the Starfleet military individual on deck, yes, I know, Starfleet's not a military. I don't care, Starfleet's a military. Um, Is saying, uh, oh yeah, the entire senior staff didn't show up. I'm sure it's not a big deal. I'm not going to check up on it. I mean, really? It took Odo to figure that one out. Anyways, but I like that Garibaldi takes that seriously and he gets on it immediately. Um, I, I, I just want to say once again really quick that I like how quickly Garibaldi pieces things together. It, once again, it's that it's that detective thing they've got going for him. And they just keep doing that. I think it's one of the reasons I like the character. Uh, I find it fascinating. I mentioned this earlier, how Night 1 and Night 2, the, the agents, are both the bad guys... But they never really come across as bad guys to me. Knight. well, that's not true. Knight uh, 1 comes across as a little more of a bad guy. But that's probably because he murders several people <laughs> in the course of this episode. Uh, actually, I think he, maybe he only murdered two people. The guard and Benson, who I guess is also a guard. Um, <clears throat> but I got this strong impression, especially from Night 2, that he was genuine. Um, the one in, in the dreamscape. That he actually really did feel like Sinclair was a traitor. And I said I'd talk about this more because this is exactly what would happen if this kind of situation happened. I want to lay this out for you. For those of you not fully aware, they talked about this before in Babylon 5, but I really got to lay this out for you. The Mimbari Earth War was overwhelmingly one-sided in favor of the Mimbari, okay? And the Mimbari were just abstractly crushing Earth. Earth, You know, the Earth forces, right? Just obliterating them um there's a comment much later in the show that the earth Alliance had one victory in the whole war now that might be exaggeration but i'm not sure it is they were just getting stomped stomped and stomped and stomped and stomped and and minbari the minbari forces have reached earth and then they surrender unconditionally that's not logical That is a, and some, I actually remember when Babylon 5 came out, a gentleman uh, who was at school with me at the time, uh, was actually, in in college, uh, was actually like, ah, this is a terrible show. And I looked at him weird, I was like, why? He's like, well, there's this huge plot hole. Some people seem to think that unexplained plot points are actually plot holes. Uh, I'd just like to say that I disagree with that and move on from that statement. But the point is, that is such an illogical thing to happen. It is so nonsensical that the mind has to try and wrap itself around why it happened, even in universe. And I like that we see a gentleman who almost literally is acting crazed Insane almost, because he has twisted his mind around trying to come up with a logical explanation for why this is happening. And the only one he could come up with was, well, they thought it would cost them too much. You know, they thought they were in a a World War II invasion of Japan situation. And it would cost them too much to take out Earth and to claim Earth. So they decided to infiltrate instead. And that's why they surrendered, so they could conquer us the quiet way. Now, the funny thing is, based on this episode there's actually a decent amount of evidence for that all of a sudden. The way Delenn is acting, the fact that Delen, a member of the Great Council, was on the ship, the fact that she has given explicit orders to kill Sinclair if he ever figures out what happened on the ship, got some Manchurian candidate kind of vibes going on there, don't we? It wouldn't surprise me that much to find out that that is what the Mimbari have been doing, the quiet conquest. But even that isn't fully logical. Because as I said, the Mimbari were crushing Earth. Like a bug. And Sinclair himself says it. You say that we could have held the line. You weren't there. We were defeated. Utterly and complete. The despair that comes out of his voice when he says that is just powerful. The rage and despair. He does a great job. of of, it, it, It really says volumes of just how bad the line was. It's a great personal way to explain how bad that battle was. To really showcase the utter hopelessness of what the line actually was there's actually a we'll see in the future uh, a quote from the earth president uh, at the time of the line battle where she says uh, uh, paraphrasing here we have repeatedly offered unconditional total surrender to the mambari and have received no reply that also gets across that point of just how bad these last few battles were um I mean, I, in case you don't get the significance of that, and I'll talk about this then, too, we were willing to be 100% subjugated, slave-raced, just to be spared from the Mambari. And the Mambari said, No, we're going to wipe you out. I am amazed that things turned out the way they did with regards to the Mambari and Earth. But anyways. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so and, and I, so, I love how this gentleman, Knight 2, has so rounded himself up about this situation, that he's come up with this situation... Which barely fits the situ- you know, barely fits the pieces. And he's like, aha! Sinclair must be a traitor, and we will use you to discover the truth of the Mimbari situation, and we will fight back, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and the funny thing was, Sinclair wanted to know just as badly as Knight Two did. I found that interesting, that the bad guys and the good guys of this episode Again, I put quote-unquote's there. Both wanted the same thing, and for effectively the same reasons. They wanted the truth. Uh, without wishing to spoil, because we actually do have a spoiler section for this episode, as you might imagine, um, I find it interesting, like, if the, he had actually discovered the total truth of what happened there, and why the Membari situation happened, and Night 2 had discovered it, I actually really wonder what Night 2's reaction would have been to that. Um the uh i also want to add a quote here because i was so strongly reminded of mass effect as sinclair's friends are being blasted all around him and he shouts you know not like this not like this and he sets sets himself all the afterburners on to for, to ram the bombard cruiser knowing full well it will do nothing there's no benefit to that there's no point of that very human again a topic i'll be talking about in the future uh, especially when we get to TNG in the best of both worlds. And I was just reminded of Mass Effect 3's Twitter campaign leading up to it. This is how humanity dies at ramming speed. It's, uh, yeah. I think that's all my notes, unfortunately. Great episode. Lots of good moments for Sinclair. Good moments for Garibaldi. Interesting moments for Dylan Night 2 was brilliant, really. He, he did a fantastic job. Um... That's it. I'm going to go ahead and cut off your... So this is your warning as ever for... Spoilers! I don't know how that became a habit for me to indicate that spoilers are about to happen. it works, right? Don't you think it works? Um, But, yeah. uh, So... Now that we're in the spoilers section, believe it or not, I actually am not going to talk about the truth of what happened with Sinclair. Or the sheer, utter, um, incredibly lucky coincidence that the one human they managed to not kill happened to be Sinclair. I'm just a, a blown away by the sheer random luck of that situation. Of course, uh, there is an a undercurrent of the possibility of fate within the Babylon 5 settings. That might be a part of it. But no, I'm not going to talk about that. That's better served elsewhere. What I do want to talk about is Jack. Now, this is great. This is one of the reasons why I say this show is better watched the second time around. Like, like it's Im- the enjoyment is improved on rewatching Because I don't think I ever caught this before. Jack is Garibaldi's assistant, you know, the one who eventually betrays him, the one who's working for the Clark administration. Um, Jack is in charge of finding Sinclair. And I would probably bet like a 99% chance that the Night One and Night Two are working for the same organization Jack is. And lo and behold, Jack just can't find Sinclair. It's weird. He's just gone. There's no sign of him, sir. And yet within seconds... Upon Garibaldi finding out about that, Garibaldi immediately deducts his way. Again, love the detective stuff. Figures out, well, wait a second. Benson. Benson's a security risk. And he's like, well, no, Benson's fine. I checked. There's no gambling debts. He's like, well, no, but I I just checked that yesterday. And Garibaldi goes and sees that he just paid off a lot of people, a lot of money, and he still has credits in his account, which means he just got paid off a lot of money right about when Sinclair gets advantage. And, yeah, just immediately puts two and two together. Within seconds... And I find it fascinating and horrible that Garibaldi does not immediately suspect Jack for the fact that Jack was so negligent, or, you know, deliberately or otherwise, to not be able to figure that out on his own. Now, you could argue he didn't have uh, what we would refer to as probable cause to be, to be concerned about that, and that is true, especially since he did trust Jack quite a bit, as we find out in the future. But it really is kind of chilling seeing how the seeds for that eventual arc were sown very early on. I like that. That's all I got. Hope you guys enjoyed. I will see you next week with uh, Deathwalker, I believe, is the next one. So catch you around, guys.